everybody welcome back to the show we have got with us tonight uh, accomplished author um man just into the paranormal hauntings i mean prolific author i mean he is i i want to say it's at least 15 16 books that he has written richard Step is with us tonight we're going to be talking about his book serial killers plus touching on some of his other works like gacy's ghost and some of his haunting things this is going to be a great show. Looking forward to it. Welcome to the Three Beards Podcast. My name's Craig, along with Austin and Chris. Passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century. We're back. Now, this time, I would like to welcome to the show Richard Estep. How are you, sir? I am good, Craig and Chris. How are you guys? Wonderful. Good. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I, I'm like, Austin's on. It's his birthday, so he's off right now. He's normally the one doing producing. I couldn't get the show to launch. I'm like clicking the intro over here. I'm like, click, click, click. Come on. It I wonder why there are only two bids. I feel like there's a trace yeah. descriptions issue. <laughs> I, I know. Well, we're we're just going to take you know. We'll just pretend you have a heavy five o'clock shadow, and we'll just we'll you call go. you the third one. Yeah, we'll figure so, it out. Yeah, exactly. No, this is this is what we t we kind of touched on serial killers last week for the first time, and that was one we luckily we had it all planned out with this this book for you: the minds, methods, and mayhem of history's most notorious murders, serial killers. Right here, this book for everybody. Uh, I really recommend this one, especially for people that are just kind of into the overall topic, because this one covers, I mean, you have everything from Richard Ramirez to Ted Bundy, the Zodiac killers. Um, the one that we really want to talk, because you touched on a few from history and this is one I'd never heard of before the giggling granny. Hmm. And that's, that was one where I was like, I wanted to get you on that one. Cause that one's just, just even the name. I mean, it doesn't seem like a serial killer name that you'd give somebody the giggling granny. It's pretty um, memorable though, isn't it? And there's this misperception mm -hmm. out there that there are no, or practically no female serial killers. Now the truth is the vast majority of them are male. Absolutely. But there are some female serial killers out there if you look, and she was one that I found particularly fascinating. So uh, yeah, she had to go in. Yeah, what what was the part that drew you the most to that story on her? Because I 
I would have to say, I mean, it just, it was, I don't know. It was just, I mean, she just had, I mean, it's just from even from the time period, it's just, it's just like everything about her story just really didn't fit. Yeah. Well, what was interesting to me, I think you say grandmother or granny, you know, and you think mm -hmm. of, of comfort. Everyone loves their granny for the most part. Uh, you know, I certainly miss mine. And so the idea of someone who is so trusted, someone that is supposed to be, you know, comforting and sweet, who is actually a murderer. Yeah, she looks like, you know, just your average mm -hmm. everyday um, yep. uh, sweet kind of senior citizen. Just so happened that uh, people she knew tended to die off under very mysterious circumstances. Wow. Yeah, Black Widow. I mean, basically. Mm -hmm. it's just, yeah. yeah. And Except she killed her own grandkid, too, right after after it was born. So, yeah. Uh, what what possesses somebody to do that? Yeah, because even her mug, like I said, I'm taking these are all out of the book, by the way, people. Uh, is this is you know even her mugshot? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't have that normal, you know, like Dorothea, you know, from the what where she there in uh, was it I think was it Sacramento? Was in California, Dorothea Puente, um, is it Puente? She's the one that killed. Um, she had all those people come in. They were living off of. They they had all their social security. It's oh, supposed to be yeah. sent to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where she basically drugged them, killed them, mm -hmm. took them outside, and buried them right there in the yard. That's right. The the boarding house kind of thing. Yeah, yeah the boarding house. Yeah. Absolutely crazy, isn't it? It's just unbelievable. Yeah. And and to me, the the killings and and the details of the murders and things of that nature are, are interesting. But it's the why. You know, what is it about these individuals that makes them the way they are? That's what I. Uh, I'm fascinated by. Are they born that way? Are they made that way? Or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, the nature versus nurture type, you know, uh, is the case where it's always up. Because there's some of them, you'll see, like, there's some people, probably like Sam Little is one, Richard Ramirez is another, where these ones are clear cases where they had a horrible childhood. And you could t you could tell. I mean, th these were one cases where these. I mean, we just talked about um, God. His name's. Uh, it was Joseph. Is Joseph Joseph Paul Franklin? We just talked about him, the white supremacist killer. That was um, mm -hmm. he went through. These ones are where just their their upbringing. You can see these are ticking time bombs. That you know, if there was a way to go back and just, I mean. If you had, I guess now with metadata, you'd have so much easier time. But if there's some way to have like all these things, but I mean, does that take us into a severe, you know, fascist, fascist state, you know, where we've got all this information being logged to figure out who's going to be a potential serial killer? Well, and you have to look at also look at all of the, the children that have these awful or worse upbringings uh, and do not become serial killers. I mean, uh, one that springs to mind for me is David Goggins, if, you, if you're familiar with him. Um, guy went on, had a horrific childhood, uh, and went on to become a Navy SEAL and um, renowned athlete and things of that nature. So, um, if you if they use their powers for good or for evil, then you're going to see two very different end products. And you know how much of that is choice and how much of it isn't. How much is predestined? That fascinates me quite honestly. Yeah, that's in. I don't know. I was just I was looking through here. I mean, I grew up in Oregon. So Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy was, a, was a big one over there as was, um, I'm trying to trim. There was another, the other name got, there was another one that was there in Oregon. That was another big one. I'm growing up and his name's failing me right now. 
he was he's he was actually in prison. I think there in Salem, in the state penitentiary. Uh, that those ones are cases where just close to home and everybody. I mean, like here we've moved down to Florida and just find out that Joseph Paul Franklin was arrested in Lakeland, mm-hmm. which is a half hour from where we live. And you see how just how close you are to some of these sites, and you're just like, man, this is you know, a lot of things they go through, and it's like you said, what, what have you through your research? And go through. Have you found is have you started to pin anything that seems to be like a commonality? Like there's like something that's this this would be a common trigger. Like if we can start noticing these things. I mean, I know the abuse to animals is yeah, abuse. that's a classic sign, isn't it? And and not abuse and a desire to torture and that sadistic streak. Uh, also, bedwetting beyond the age where that would be considered normal, uh, especially boys. Um, they, they wet the bed far beyond the age at which that would be expected. And something else that struck me about a number of them is that quite a lot of them were mama's boys, you know? Um, yeah. The very opposite of what we talk about when we talk about these neglectful childhoods, their mothers kind of placed them on a pedestal and they could do no wrong. They were the golden child. Um, that also seems to be a factor, but there is no one thing which, which unites them all. There is no one single factor that we can point to um, just a number of suggestive characteristics. I know there's a similarity. Like somebody posted on and I saw it like one Libra is not in there. I mean, all the Zodiac signs of serial killers, it is the major ones. And it seems to be like there's, there seems to be a commonality. Like you know, there's a certain three or four where a majority of these serial killers all fall under the Zodiac sign. I mean, the argument there weird. would be though, there is always going to have to be a zodiac sign that a number of them fall under, right? If mm-hmm. you take, so I don't know how much much credence I, I put in that theory. Um, I think it's such a complex and convoluted issue. You have to take it almost on a on a case by case basis. What fascinates me is if you put a child A through certain circumstances in life, they're born into a certain family at a certain time, certain place, and they are subjected to certain conditions. Child B, who experiences things very similar, does not go on to yeah. become a circuit. Well, what is the difference? What is it about? Um, child A that made them susceptible to this. I've often wondered if there are far more people out there that are susceptible to to, to being murderers um, than we realize, but they just kind of never get that push, thankfully, or they never snap as some of them do and kill somebody. Because there are several cases that I wrote about in which um, the first murder was accidental or was believed to be accidental. And then the serial killer realized or the soon-to-be serial killer realized, hey, I, I kind of, I got away with this. The, nobody missed this person. The cops didn't figure it out. Nobody's breaking down my door, and I kind of liked it. Maybe I'll do it again. And you know, you see that also. So I think the potential is probably more widespread than than we really realize. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, because I was as you're saying that was that was the thing. I was just going to bring that up too. It's just where. You know, these cases where siblings that grow up in the same abuse, the (laughs) same everything here, and one becomes a serial killer and the other one becomes a counselor. Yes. And actually helps people through it. You know, and how how are you able, how is that individual? And that's where one of those, I'd really like to see almost like an in-depth study is how did this person overcome this to the point to where they're helping people and the other person is going on a stabbing spree and just killing everybody that they, you know, at will. 
it's, it's just, it's really, that's part to me that's been the most fascinating is like reading through these things. It's, it's a very valid point. And I think it's one that we as a, as a society and a culture really need to address because you look at the number of rage crimes out there, you know, um, the number of mass shootings, the number of um, uh, cases in which people just seem to snap. What can be done to derail that? What can be done uh, to mitigate it? And I see April's comment about Eileen Wernos. And mm -hmm. I did write uh, about Eileen extensively. And a, a lot of the narrative here comes from the Hollywood version of her story, um, Monster, the film in which Charlize Theron uh, yep. played her. And of course, it was an incredible performance by Charlize Theron. But the narrative there was that Eileen was 100% a product of abuse um, and that she was doing what she was doing, not because she enjoyed it, but to seek, you know, um, to get some of that rage out against men that abused her. And yet Eileen Wernos um, admitted on more than one occasion she murdered some of those men purely because she wanted to, because she could, because she wanted to rob them, uh, including the guy that she shot in the back. You know, so it's, it's a little tougher to defend that. And I'm not saying that, that she didn't experience um, terrible treatment. I believe she did and deserve sympathy for that. But there are many, many individuals that experience that level of treatment that don't go on to murder people. So what made her different? What was it about her, her makeup and her circumstance? And that's, and for me, that's one of the things that's amazing about a lot of the, especially because you don't see a lot of female serial killers is because of that. You don't, the violence that's inherent in some of these things, you don't see the actual, you'll see something like we, the Dorothea point that you see those ones where it's through drugging, it's through something like that. You don't see this level like, Eileen, you don't see the violent side. And that's one of the things that's really surprising whenever you have it, because it's just, it's such a shocking thing. It doesn't normally occur. Absolutely. I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I know there is a perception out there that, that males tend to kill more by, by trauma, by guns, by blades, by brute force, and that women don't. But there are exceptions, and, and Eileen Wernus was definitely an exception to that. Then... Another historical one, which is crazy, and I don't know if a lot of people in Chicago, H.H. H. Holmes. Hmm. That is one that is crazy. Hotel of murder. Except when you, when you start to delve into the Holmes story, a lot of the claims about him were inflated by the press at the time. You know, and this is a timely subject, isn't it? When nobody mm -hmm. trusts the media anymore. Um, now, Holmes was a serial killer, undoubtedly. I mean... He, uh, he killed multiple victims. What I found interesting about him, at least from my research, uh, is that he appeared to remove those who were obstacles to getting what he wanted. I don't think H.H. H. Holmes was killing people because he enjoyed it. Um, he wasn't a sadistic. He wasn't a torturer. Um, he, Mr. Mudgett there, as it was his real name, um, was killing people who got in his way and got between him and what he wanted, which was often cash and independence. Uh, this whole thing about the murder castle being designed, though, to, to hide all of these bodies at the World's Fair and things of that nature, um, the evidence doesn't quite support it from what I've seen. Yeah, and he is, he's also one of the ones, too, that has the rare accomplice. Mm-hmm. Accomplices aren't that rare, actually. When you see male-female serial killer duos, um, what you tend to find is that the male is the dominant um, part of it the one that is kind of the driving motive force and the female is the one that is 
um, either starstruck by the male or um, is the less dominant of the two. Now, if you look at Fred and Rosemary West, uh, who I write about in the book, in the Cromwell Street House of Horrors, um, for many years it was believed that Fred West um, was was behind the murders, that he was the one that was, um, uh, you know, it wanted to kill those poor girls. They, they murdered a lot of girls and buried them beneath their home and beneath their garden. Well, as things turned out, it appeared that his wife, who was playing the, I was forced to go along with it, I was ignorant of much of this card, um, was by far the more sadistic and brutal of the two. When witnesses started talking, they described her as, as horrifically sadistic uh, and that she was the dominant personality there. Yeah, and that's um, the picture that's right. The, that's the first basically chapter in the book. That's them, if everybody yeah. could see. Yeah, that's 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 cool. That it's, everybody's just like, it's got pictures showing things how they went through, um, and that's I. We were talking a little bit before we went to show is Sam Little. That's that's mm -hmm. a new series that's out on Netflix. Um, for anybody who watched that one, that one's fantastic as well too. But. You talk about that in the chapter. Here is probably the most prolific serial killer. And we I don't know if we will ever know just how many he did, in fact, kill. They think 93. Yeah, I don't know that he remembers. Oh, remembered, yeah. remembered, I should say, um, at all. So we will probably never know. And he's, it's one of those, for me, he's probably one of the ones, to me, that seems more, more, I think one of the more brutal, one of the more just creepier ones, the fact of just how much he enjoyed the feel of like the neck and stuff as he was squeezing. And he loved to see the hemorrhaging in the eyes as he would choke, as he would choke them and suffocate them. Yeah. If I recall, Samuel Little hit one of his victims so hard, he broke her back. Yep. So he's a very physically imposing man. Um, and yeah. I very much enjoyed that. Um, one of the commonalities that, that many of them have in common is this this willingness to prey on those who are on the fringes of society, the margins of society. So the homeless, uh, drug users, sex workers, uh, people of that nature. And, and I think that's why he went undetected for so long. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, because he, a lot of these people is like, well, why didn't nobody anybody notice us? Well, who's going to notice when the local street um, prostitute suddenly goes missing? No, nobody's yeah. other than their friends are going to know it, but the police aren't going to do anything because they're like, this happens all the time. A street worker goes missing. I mean, they can't, you know, there's nothing they can do because nobody's going to talk to them and give them. Yeah, one, of the, one of the more disturbing cases that I worked firstly as a paranormal investigator was a, a place called Fox Hollow Farm in um, Indiana, which was the home of the I-70 Strangler. And I wrote a book uh, about that called The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm uh, with uh, Rob Graves, my co-author. And um, her Baumeister, the I-70 Strangler, was killing gay men. Uh, yeah, thanks very much for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. Was killing gay men during the 1990s. And back then, nobody was really interested at first in, in missing gay men. It was just assumed that they had moved on to another town or disappeared or, or something of that nature. Nobody really assumed foul play at all. Uh, and that's how he kept getting away with it. But... Uh, you find many of the serial killers, yeah, they're looking for people that will disappear. They, uh, Gacy picked his first victim up at a bus station, for example, kid that was making a bus connection and traveling cross country. So it's, it's, it's easier than ever and harder than ever at the same time to disappear in modern day 
um, America and the UK, the Western world. So it's if we leave phones aside for a minute, um, it's scary how many people just disappear off the map and are either never looked for or are reported missing but just never found. Yeah, and it's you know Gacy, you know you brought him up too. It's how could, you already have the phobia of clowns, and now you add the serial killer mixed in, in with it. I mean, that is just is what he this it's thing of nightmares. Yeah, and, and Gacy Gacy said famously, clowns can get away with murder, and of course he was. So yeah, um, yeah, thoroughly vile man, absolutely awful. And uh, the, the paranormal aspects of that case, uh, when I was working on it, were were quite fascinating and disturbing. Also, I don't know. You, you, oh, you're know, I don't know if you've thought too deep into this. Do you think there's a lot more serial killers that just haven't been caught? Because if you look on the missing report, all the time there's either females that look alike that's missing, or little kids that kind of resemble each other's missing. Do you think there's more serial killers that they just don't want to link together? I mean, if they kill once a year or they kill every other two years, but these people are still adding up missing and nobody ever finds these people. There's no question about that whatsoever. Um, There are absolutely uh, numerous serial killers out there that are are not not being caught and may never be. Generally speaking, uh, they, they kill until they are unable to do so anymore. So, for example, perhaps they become old enough, they become too physically frail to do it, um, or they end up in jail for something else. That's not uncommon either. Um, But it's rare that they simply lose the taste for it. Some of them will go for years, if not decades, between murders, having the semblance of the normal life, but they usually come back to kill again while they can. One of the things that people found so um, uh, frightening about the Zodiac case is that the Zodiac murders just stopped. And to this day, we don't know if the Zodiac killer um, died of a heart attack or was in a car crash or just got too old to do it, you know, or or maybe it's that guy sitting next to you on the bus or the train. We will never know, I think. I think the funniest one is where the people that say it's Ted Cruz. He's, he's, He's not even old enough. Ted Cruz is the Zodiac killer. Yeah, there's, there's people that said, yeah, and I just I don't even think he, you know it's like how old would he have had to have been to you know to create the, do the first one? I mean, it's like we're we're talking elementary school. I heard that, but I debunked that. I didn't even think yeah. I didn't even yeah. You brought that up, and I'm like Ted Cruz. Yeah, it's just it's one of those crazy theories. I'm like, yeah, I don't think that works. I'm sure Ted has lawyers, so I don't think he's the Zodiac killer. But um, yeah. I mean, whoever it was had some knowledge, some working knowledge of cryptography. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we just had one of those um, uh, puzzles uh, decrypted recently, uh, for example, supposedly would tell us the killer's name and didn't because, shockingly, the Zodiac liked to lie about things. I do not think they will ever uncover his identity now definitively. We, we, yeah, just, caught I, a, we just caught a guy several years ago in Tampa that they tracked him down due to, like, DNA of mm-hmm. one of his ancestors he was a serial killer out of Tampa, if, mm. if I recall, and he was actually a law enforcement officer, so he knew the ends. He knew when they were looking. He knew all the details of the case. I'd have to look, let me look see if I can find his name while we're talking. Absolutely, I, and I think his DNA, uh, the science of DNA evidence advances. Absolutely, we are going to see some more cases being solved. 
Um, but you also need a good degree of luck. As hard as, as law enforcement officials can work, you need a healthy dose of luck in some of these cases, especially when the trail is cold and has been cold for decades. Uh, sometimes it takes a real you know, stroke of luck in addition to hours upon hours of diligent work in order to catch that break. Yeah, it's, I mean, obviously, you know, everybody talks about Jack the Ripper. I mean, I'm sure you've heard, you know, the theories behind, you know, where there's people have written several books, like where it's my great grandfather, you know, they live in Texas. Richard Holmes, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think Jeff Mudgett, who is Holmes's great grandson, um, believes that, that uh, Holmes was Jack the Ripper. And um, does, do you think there's any really, because when I was reading that story, that was the one for me that seems to have a little bit of validity to it. So the fact that he was frequent to, to travel. I mean, it's, it's entirely possible. What's interesting about the Ripper murders uh, is that, again, they stopped very suddenly. Mm -hmm. um, did the killer go overseas? Did the killer, um, you know, end up in jail for something else? Was the killer killed? Who knows? But that's the great um, – I'm careful about how I word this because it's too easy to sound sensationalist and enthusiastic. But yeah. the most intriguing crimes are the ones in which the killer was never caught, and there is endless speculation. Uh, for example, I researched the Velisca Axe murders. Uh, I wrote an entire book about that house and that case. And the Velisca Axe murder story was so big when it occurred, it knocked the Titanic off the front page of American newspapers. And it was this idea that you are home in your bed, you're, you're fast asleep, you should be as safe as you can be anywhere in the world, and somebody can walk into your house, take your, your axe, and can, can murder you and your entire family in their sleep and get away scot-free. And uh, to this day, we do not know who committed the Valeska axe murders. There is a great theory backed up by a lot of evidence that it was a traveling killer who was riding the, the rails, you know, was, was traveling from village to village uh, on the train uh, and, and was killing um, families like the Moors uh, who he murdered in Valeska. But we still don't know, and the odds are good that we never will. And it's that whole uh, we-just-don't-know factor that keeps this endlessly fresh and fascinating for many of us. Yeah, Ch um, Chastity was just like, no one's really talking about it. It's black women being you know, being found missing in bodies of water. I think it wasn't that the one, um, wasn't that down in Atlanta in Georgia? Isn't that the one where they're being tossed, they're being tossed off of a bridge. I heard about that. I think that was in, in Atlanta somewhere. Is that the and one? There, is that the one? I'm not sure if that's, a, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one, Richard. I'm not familiar with that one. I have to look into that. The one I was talking about was the Seminole Heights serial killer out of, out of Tampa, Florida. Okay. I'm not familiar with that case. Having written a book about serial killers, you'd think I would know a lot more of them, but there are so, so many. Oh, yeah. And the definition is kind of interesting to me as well. I mean, for example, uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, I was in St. Joseph, Missouri, and uh, I was in Jesse James's house on the anniversary of his murder. Um, and if you look at the Old West, a lot of the outlaws especially would classify would qualify to be called serial killers because of the number of, uh, of people that they killed. So, you know, I think this is a phenomenon that's been with us under a slightly different guise throughout much of history. And as um, popped up, I just, I just remembered it's, um, it's Jerry Brudos. Okay. 
was a certain, that was who was when I was growing, that was the other one that was located, you know, that was housed, you know, there in Salem, Oregon. And like, he died, you know, before we back in 2006, but yeah, he, I think he was convicted of four murders, but yeah, that was, that was the one I was talking about. Um, yeah, I, for me, that's, that's always been the age old question. I mean, I know you've done a lot of this and I want to get, have you get into some of your paranormal stuff because that that's really fascinating as well too based off these but just do you do you think that they're ever gonna really have come up with something that's gonna be you know almost like a profile because profiling keeps getting more and more to where it's gonna be easier to spot the ones that can have this potential than you know, but like I said, without getting into the police state, you know, where mm -hmm. everybody's information's gone through. I mean, do you think that's ever going to come about or is it going to unfortunately be, it's always going to be, how do we stop them before they kill again? I think it's, as technology advances, when we start looking at things like, can you be genetically predisposed to this? Mm -hmm. um, are there certain genetic markers in the same way that there are genetic markers for predisposition to heart disease or diabetes or, or you name it? Uh, that's an intriguing possibility, isn't it? Um, but but I think so many factors need to align when it comes down to profiling. Um, the chat is talking about this a little bit, or is at least alluding to it. I almost wonder if AI algorithms, which sift through uh, huge amounts of data very quickly, doctors now use them to help guide treatment modalities, in fact. Will we have AI algorithms that look at crimes and... Uh, bodies that are found without explanation and things of that nature have certain reports of, you know, domestic violence and things like that. Is there, a, is there other algorithms that will tie them together and help predict that a serial killer is operating in a certain area? And I think that's entirely possible as computer science advances that we might see something along those lines. Now, as you were saying, I was, that was making me think too. Should, so do you think there needs to be a set standard of guidelines um, at to where when you're coming like the Emmys, when your corners, when they show up to do the investigation on when a body's found to where there's certain data points that have to be collected and made sure they're put in here for cross sharing. So that way this database can work efficiently. That could make a great deal of sense. I mean, for example, I talked about the Fox hollow case earlier, uh, her mm -hmm. Baumeister who, who was um, believed, I should say the alleged killer Despite the fact that there was never any suspect, her Baumeister was never tried because he shot himself in the head when the police raided his home. Um, so the alleged serial killer, her Baumeister, uh, it turned out that he made a lot of business trips along I-70 and the bodies of young men kept turning up at the side of the road along I-70 um, when he was on those trips. Those murders stopped when he um, bought the house called Fox Hollow Farm, and then he started killing at home. So, you know, is there a way to look at the fact that murders start and stop and then disappearances start within a certain geographic distance? That's for a, a much better educated individual than me to say, but the way that artificial intelligence is, is developing so quickly um, in the era of big data, we have the ability to crunch a lot of numbers very quickly. I would be amazed within a few years if we don't have some serious help on the detection and analysis front from AI. Yeah, because I was, I was thinking, because like paranormal investigations, you, where you have like the laser grid systems to where something like that, where you set it in the room and it's almost like the sci-fi thing. It does a complete scan. So where like to us, it wouldn't really make that big of a deal, but like 
say, uh, we'll just use your example, say like you're the trained person you're looking for, you're going to be, okay, I'm looking behind you and I see all these, these helmets are right here, but there's one that this is a guy that's meticulous with every other thing. This one's skewed a little bit, <laughs> you know, and to where it, it would pick up on stuff like that, where the normal, the normal, normal police investigation, you know, they're not going to pick up on stuff. They're going to take pictures. They're going to go through here, but that might be the one to key that this guy may fit the guy that goes through and subtly makes, you know, changes something. It's like, you know, like for an OCD type thing, just to, you know, just like, that's their calling card. You, you went, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, something else, you know, we might, we might see um, flags when certain retailers sell certain materials together. Um, if you're buying a whole lot of duct tape on Amazon, <laughs> three sets and three sets of handcuffs, um, maybe that's not for date night. You know, um, mm-hmm. I'm being a little bit flippant, but not entirely. Uh, yeah. we, we know that detectives look for certain suspicious patterns of purchases and hardware stores. Serial killers, you know, buy a, a lot of disposal materials at hardware stores. I'm not. I don't have expertise in the specifics of this, but it's all about pattern recognition, isn't it? At the end of the day. Yeah. And I will say that our ability to uh, gather data at this point in human history is better than it has ever been before. And our ability to sift it and find something meaningful is improving uh, very, very quickly as well. So. But where Craig was going with that database, he completely went somewhere completely left that I wasn't thinking he was going to go. But as far as even something as simple as a database, if you've got a serial killer in Florida, and he flies to Oregon, and then he goes to New York, mm-hmm. something of where they can enter exactly how this person was killed. And, you know, only law enforcement have that. And in Florida, they like, okay, it's a match. She was strangled, her hair was cut, and basically have like a similar database, and then they can try to link some of this together without possibly the public knowing, but just link it together. Okay, he cut a strand of hair out. So this same thing happened in New York. It happened in mm-hmm. Georgia. So then mm-hmm. you would kind of get a pattern that you're looking for the same individual. Yeah, I think it's it's certainly possible. And, and as you pointed out, Craig, earlier, you know, the, the civil liberties component of this, how, how far do you get to go? How far do we allow our officials to yeah. go before they infringe on our liberties is going to be a huge debate. Uh, how much privacy versus say, uh, security are we willing to trade and so forth? But um, I will say this. With the number of cameras that there are in public places, the average American is on camera, I believe it's 22 times a day uh, anymore. Plus, everybody has a camera in their pocket. So you go to the ATM, your picture is taken. You're on the highway, your picture is taken. You go to your job, your picture is taken, often without you knowing it. Every retail store you go in, um, it may well be that, you know, it's going to get harder and harder to, to be a, I hate to use the word, successful serial killer. And by successful, I mean undetected. You know, uh, serial killers are usually caught because they get complacent and they slip up. I mean, that's something that definitely struck me as I was researching this book and writing it. How did they get caught? And very rarely was it simply a piece of bad luck. Quite often they'd gotten away with it so long they got sloppy, they got complacent. And that is what ultimately was there and doing. Now, there was a couple, I think, didn't they, they basically wanted to, wanted to almost get caught just so they could start getting credit for it. I remember there's a couple where it just, they were not getting credit for the crimes. I mean, so I know the Zodiac killer, even though he hasn't been caught was one of those where it was getting more and more blatant. Like I did this, you know, I want the attention, you know, because it's just like, they're not giving me my due. 
that that is common and uh, one thing i do recall from my days as a firefighter was that uh, on every major fire if there is a suspicion that um that an arsonist is at work um a, a very savvy fire marshal will be watching the crowd because crowds always gather obviously fires are interesting things to watch but many arsonists like to watch their handiwork they take this perverse delight in watching the fire department come in and put out their fire that they call mm -hmm. you know they're the center of attention and so if you see the same faces in different neighborhoods that's something that a savvy fire marshal will keep an eye on the desire for publicity and recognition and acknowledgement um is very very inherent and that's why so many of the serial killers like to taunt the police uh it, it's some sometimes it's not the killing itself but the fact that they're able to get one over on the authorities that, that gives them their kicks. Yeah, I know. I know everybody wants like the Hollywood version of the serial killer. Those don't really exist. You know, the Hannibal Lecter. Um, I'm trying to remember Kevin Spacey's character in set, um, Seven. Yeah, that was another great movie. You know, just where you know that I think that encompassed like the real psychopathic. You know, you know serial killer where they have an overall goal in their actions there's not something where it's just it's like random like hey that person's available you know kill kill mm -hmm. no this one was literally these meet the steps and then i have to i must complete my you know my you know my glorious you know mission well and, and, and most people love a good serial killer movie so so whether it's something like seven which is brilliantly plotted and acted um or the saw movies uh which are very popular <laughs> Obviously, yep. there's the law of diminishing returns there. But um, th those are the product of, you know, Hollywood screenwriting. I, I do like to tell people you are still far more likely to be murdered by somebody you know than a stranger who is a serial killer. And yep. reading, reading a book like mine or writing it even, you start to look at people um, <laughs> in a very kind of odd way. You start to think, <laughs> you know, how innocent is my neighbor? Is that a strange look I got? I know. <laughs> in, in reality, though, um, you are far more likely to be the victim of homicide from somebody that you know and that knows you. So um, the idea of the serial killer stalking strangers is, is far more common than the serial killer killing people that they know. Question, how many serial killers do you actually think out of all your books that you wrote that actually have an arterial motive like the DC sniper? He was ultimately trying to get back to kill his ex-girlfriend or it was, it was his baby mama or his ex-girlfriend. So how many serial killers do you think that's actually trying to circle around to kill somebody they really want to kill, but they have to make it look like there is, you know, actually a serial killer so they can actually kill the person that they want to kill? So with, with the caveat that I'm by no means a trained psychologist or psychiatrist, yeah. uh, I think the vast majority, well, they're all doing it for a reason. And that reason always varies. So it's tough to answer that question in any meaningful way. But looking at the difference between them, uh, looking at the sheer variety of reasons, probably the most prolific serial killer we have ever seen, if we discount, you know, people like Caligula that ran empires and stuff, if we're talking about our traditional definition of a serial killer, then you're looking at somebody like Dr. Harold Shipman in the UK. Um, now, Shipman was a doctor that killed in excess of 200 people. 200. Um, and his motive, well... Shipman was a young man when his mother was on her deathbed and the local doctor used to come to his house and he would take his mother's pain away by giving them medications, by giving injections of morphine. Um, and that was why Shipman went to medical school. So he started out with this very, I think, noble goal, 
you know, what's more noble than that? I want to be the kind of person that took away my mother's pain and uh, and help people. And then how did Shipman get from that to giving fatal overdoses of morphine to literally hundreds of people? Well, it seems yeah. like you have the characteristics of being a very volatile personality. Uh, the people that worked with him said that if you were his peer or a superior to him in, in the workplace, he would treat you very differently than if he saw you as an underling. So he saw certain people yep. as being beneath him. Uh, and those, those pathologic personality traits were always there. And I think Shipman developed this, this sense of godhood, this god complex. I have the power of life and death. And today I might kill and today I might not. So wow. I think a lot of them are not even consciously aware of their motives. They are driven and, and couldn't quite articulate why um, if, if they tried. Now, so kind of like that too, you know, where you were talking about, you know, where they don't maybe not control it because you have, how many would you say typically fall under the, like the David Berkowitz, you know, son of Sam, the dog, you know, Sam, the dog was telling me who to kill. Yeah, I mean, we, we've heard that the devil made me do it defense a lot, right? That seems like a, a timely point to make, what with the new Conjuring movie coming out in two days, and that's the very crux of that movie. Um, the idea that I'm not responsible because. Yeah. This isn't me, it's the dog. This isn't me, it's it's Satan. This isn't me, it's whatever. Um, I think that that, def yes, sure, some of them do hear voices that are telling them to kill. But, but equally, many of them are, are using this as an excuse or as a defense, as a card to play. Because I would say, if you made me pick one defining characteristic of serial killers, and I would love to see what people in the chat think about this, um, but the, I would put my money on the fact that they are all egotistical and cunning. That combination of ego-driven cunning. Yeah, and that's, well, that's kind of, we, we brought that up last week too. Um, with Mark Olshaker um, on his book. That's, oh, yeah. And that was in, where I, me personally, I mean, I hate to be judge, jury type thing, you know, side note there with, with them finding religion. You know, it's not me to judge who they are, but it seems to me like a lot of them find this not so much as like they truly repent of, more as this is a one last ditch effort to make sure that the focus comes back on them so that they could recount their tales. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, some of them wanted posterity. Holmes definitely um, was, at the end, that was really all he had left. You know, how am I going to be remembered? How big a mark did I leave? As far as religion goes, I mean, it's interesting that you have people like Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, uh, would do the most horrific things to innocent people, and yet was very high up in his church, was a well-respected member of his church. So how do you have a genuine faith? And uh, in, in something like Christianity, and yet you are able to go out and, and murder entire families. It's um, mm -hmm. I, I've often come to wonder when you look at the double lives that these individuals lead, which is the mask and which is the true face. You know, are they really this monster, twenty four hours of the day, seven days a week, that is just really good at acting like an ordinary human being? Or are they ordinary human beings 99% of the time who then flip and become monstrous? Um, which is the mask and which is really them? And I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good question because that's that's a crux. I mean, because you have some of these people, you can't you can't claim that they're they're crazy, they're psychotic, because you have somebody like Ted Bundy, a brilliant man, 
He even well, you know defended himself. And, you know, you're like, so you can't go I'd to the that, I really would. Firstly, there's an old saying in legal circles that a man who represents himself, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a lawyer that represents himself has a fool for a client. Yeah. You know? and, and even then with, with Bundy, it was about grandstanding. Look at mm -hmm. me standing up in front of the jury. Look at me. Richard Ramirez, who we talked about earlier in court, oh, yeah. was grandstanding. He was flashing occult symbols. He had a, a crowd of groupies that came to the court every day. You know, uh, I mean, how does how does a serial rapist, torture, and murderer get groupies for goodness sake? And yet, it was like Beatlemania with Ramirez when he was in court. So uh, I don't know that Bundy was actually that intelligent. Firstly, if he was, he would have stayed off the radar a lot more. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Now, kind of expand on what you just said. Mm -hmm. Where do you think this in the psyche of people? You know, because like you said, you're not a psychologist. I mean, it's hard to just. But from the stuff you see, how Charles Banson, you know, Ted Bundy, Richard Ramirez, you've got these women that this is a guy that is a rapist, kills women, does these things. And not only are they not afraid, they are, I love you. I want to be with you. I, I want you to be, and it's just, you know, marry me. And you're like, what is it about this, that these, that these guys have this hold on some of these females to get them to where it's like, like Beatlemania. Yeah, and ordinarily I'd, be, I'd ask myself, are we being sexist here? But I can't think of any instances of, of female murderers that have this barrage of attention from males. So it does seem to be a uniquely um, a female male phenomenon. I almost wonder if it isn't the fact that it's, it's a safe thrill for them, that they can um, claim their celebrity serial killer and, and know that, you know, he's going to be behind bars forever. Uh, it's... What's kind of scary is that we as a society have, have accorded some of these individuals rock star status. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I mean, many of them have seen it that way. Ramirez kind of dressed that way, you know. Um, and I think that one of the things that gave me sleepless nights about writing about serial killers was <coughs> I did not want them to be admired. I don't. I think they're vile. I think they're appalling excuses for humanity. Some of them, I think, are, are subhuman. Uh, but um, they are still worthy of study. But to idolize them, to have them as pinups, you know, to want to marry one, it's 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 a tough circle to square in my mind. Yeah, the people that walk around with a Richard Ramirez shirt or a Ted Bundy shirt, I mean, mm -hmm. you're basically, you're in de facto, like, worshiping and giving these guys the celebrity status that they don't deserve. But it's like for anybody that criticizes somebody like yourself for writing these books, it's one of the things. If you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. I mean, if you don't pay attention to, hey, you know, these people have been missing in here. It's like, hey, why don't we start looking at the similarities here and see if we can't figure out who's killing these people? Well, and, and there is definitely a way to cover it. And I tried not to, to make the book salacious. I mean, uh, you can write a biography of Hitler and not advocate or be a fan of Hitler. Hopefully you are. You know, yeah. so, um, but but there is still much to be learned about Hitler and why he behaved the way he did. Going back to that tortured childhood thing, I know many historians and psychologists have, have talked about the fact that um, many of his issues started with seeing abuse of his mother. Uh, I, I, do, I do worry, though, that we, we are so obsessed with, with, the, with the serial killer phenomenon. We as a culture, because all of the Western world seems the same way, you can log on to Netflix and see most of the, the top documentaries of true crime and specifically mm -hmm. serial killer related. Um, 
I, I hope that our fascination, though, comes from a healthy place, which for many people it does. We, we want to understand we don't venerate. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Cause I, and I think because we talked a little bit prior to the show, and I was told you I've really been watching all these all these shows, and it's not from like, oh, my God, is this – but it's more like I find this fascinating how these people got away with this for so long, and nobody yeah. put this stuff together. And, and, you know, Mona in the chat has made a great point. It's too bad people don't remember the victims' names. If anyone's going yep. to be remembered, it should be the victim. I mean, having been um, uh, involved uh, with mass shootings in my own career, I, I don't want to see the, the, the shooter's name and face plastered all over the media. Once it's over, I'm, I'm primarily interested in keeping the memory of those good and innocent people alive. That's what we should really focus on. And the one we I've, I've mentioned here a couple of times is Confessions of a Serial Killer. Um, and that's the one where I really like this. And I think it's, yeah, it's also like catching a serial killer too. And that's what this, what this lady has done is she's actually giving name names to these, to these victims and actually finding, finding who they are and giving them what they deserve, you know, to, an answer for these families, giving closure to these people. Here's, this isn't just a prostitute that was killed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing, yep. you know, one thing that um, I learned early is I'm a paramedic. And one thing that I learned early in medicine, and I teach all of my own students, this is that there's a real tendency for us in medicine to depersonalize our patients. And it's, it's a defense mechanism. So mm -hmm. I might describe somebody as um, the, the chest painter in bed six. And you have to actively remember that the chest painter in bed six is, is John Smith and he's married and he's somebody's dad and somebody's son. And he's probably pretty scared right now. Um, and so medical professionals hopefully reach that point where they're still able to be appropriately clinically detached, but you don't depersonalize the person. Serial killers have this ability to completely depersonalize other human beings. They see them more as disposable uh, objects, you know, things to be yeah. toyed with, things for their gratification, and their suffering. Uh, they have no empathy for the suffering that they inflict, or they actively take joy in the suffering that they inflict. Yeah, there was one that was, it was, I'm trying to I'll see if I can find it. Cause there's another one. It was just, it was almost perfectly like what you just said. It was, they, that was their MO. I mean, they just, you can see they just, they absolutely had complete disregard for anything about the person. It wasn't just like, I mean, it was almost like they went out of their way to, you know, to do this to the, their victims. And it was, it was pretty, you know, if I think of it, I'll get to it. But, uh, I teased here. I want to get to you. So you've done several of your haunted, like the horrors of the Fox hollow farm, but you've also done a lot of haunted like hospitals, mm -hmm. haunted healthcare books. And so what, what really was the first for you where it really got you into going for the, the paranormal angle, like doing the investigations? Well, I've, I've been a paranormal investigator for 25 years. Um, I started back in the UK in the mid nineties before I came to the States to live and um, I joined uh, the fire department on September 11. That was my way of, of trying to make some sense out of that awful event. Became an EMT, became a paramedic. And a lot of, of, of doctors, nurses, patients, medical staff have strange things happen to them on the job. And 
it used to be kind of a joke in the hospital that, oh, you know, you had something weird happen to you up on the fourth floor. Well, that ghost guy, the paramedic will probably be in later. You should tell him your story. And it happened to me enough that I, I wanted to start writing them down and sharing these stories with other with others, which is kind of what led to me being asked to do the TV show Haunted Hospitals and, and Paranormal 911, you know. Um, I, I find healthcare providers especially to be very good, reliable eyewitnesses because these are generally uh, people with a scientific background, scientific training, they're the skilled observers. And when they, uh, they're also around death quite a bit. So when they have strange stories to tell, I like to listen and uh, I like to share them with readers. So I haven't, um, I haven't seen one of the, those books yet. What would you say is one of the craziest experiences in the hospital that you can, that you can just off the top of your head, it's like, this one really stuck with me, you know, that we encountered. The, the one that actually stuck with me the most, it wasn't that it was crazy, Craig, but it was that it touched my life personally. Um, because I was asked to go sit with a young man who was dying, who was terminally ill with cancer. And his, his name was Kyle, Kyle Stolmack. And I was supposed to go hang with Kyle for a couple of hours, sign some books for him. His dad had said that he was seeing the ghosts of um, other children that he had been through cancer treatment with and that had since passed on. And that they were telling them him that, that they were he was about to die pretty soon, and um, everything was going to be okay. And he wanted some reassurance that he wasn't you know um, hallucinating or, or going mad or anything like that. That this was a real experience. So I sat with him, and he became pretty much my best friend. Uh, and I kept going back and hanging out with Kyle, and he taught me a lot of things about my own life. Now, now he and I talked about ghosts and his paranormal experiences. Uh, the cancer had eaten into the side of his face and was immensely painful. And one night he's in bed and uh, two very tall glowing figures walked into his room, didn't disturb uh, anybody else in the house, his mom, his dad or his sister. One of them touched him on the side of the face and instantly made the pain go away. And this figure said that the third time would be the final time. Now, this was Kyle's third time with cancer. He'd beaten it twice and the doctors had said that it had gotten into his lungs and it was unlikely, very unlikely, that he was going to be able to defeat it again. Um, and Kyle made sure that he kept extensive notes. He wanted to make sure that he was not deluding himself. So uh, he noted the times of these encounters. He noted that he was not on medications at the time. He was his own skeptical investigator. I love this kid. It's awesome. Yeah, it absolutely was. And yeah. and. and but, but the main thing he taught me was that this kid complained less and he had a terminal illness than I did after a day at work. He taught me to be grateful. He taught me how to die with dignity. And he was just an incredible human being. So I wrote his story up and I put it. It's the last section of my, my book, Haunted Healthcare, and I wanted to share his story with the world. And, you know, this, this kid wow. suffered so much had these very strange encounters, but the real important aspect of those encounters was not the paranormal nature of them. It was the connection that he and I made and the friendship we got out of it. And uh, Kyle just broke my heart when he died. And, uh, and I think of that guy every day. That's, that's an amazing story. Cause that, that's, that's kind of what I was getting at, you know, crazy was just like a sensationalist term, I guess, but it was just, yeah, okay. it was just, yeah, there was the thing. That's, healthy, that's what he said too. These are crazy experiences, man. Yeah, that, so yeah, he was right there with you. But this kid was made an honorary Navy SEAL. He had like a sniper's ghillie suit that the SEAL team had sent him. Oh, you know, cool. he was a wonderful, wonderful. I call him a kid. He was 21, 22. Um, 
and yeah, incredible story. And the paranormal brought us together. And uh, I, I'm real proud to call call him my best friend. That's a, that's an amazing story. Uh, every, I said everybody for what we were just talking about there. You know, haunted healthcare. I mean, if anything, go buy that book just to you know, not only just an honor of you know that that story. I mean that that is an amazing thing because not many people can have that personal connection when they're do when they're doing these type of things. And that's wow. That's, that's I'm blown away by that story. That's, well, you know, something I'd love to tell you as well is if you watch my show, if you watch haunted hospitals. Those kind of shows are, are by intent. Uh, you know, they're creepy. They cover a lot of creepy stories. The, the vast majority of, of, of the healthcare stories that I've heard are very positive ones. They're very enlightening ones. They're ones that would, rather than cause fear, would actually do the very opposite. There is a lot of reason for hope um, because of some of those stories. And it, it has convinced me that we do live on after we die and that the the possibility of interacting with those who have passed, uh, well, it's more common than most people think, is what I'll say. A lot of hospitals have their ghosts and their ghost stories. Uh, I've talked to doctors in the UK, I've talked to doctors um, across the US and Canada, and many of them tell the same sorts of stories, as do the patients, as do the nurses. There's a commonality to all of this, which makes me think it's a real phenomenon rather than some big collective delusion. And that, and that definitely makes um, makes sense too, because like I said, there there doesn't seem to be like much to where you'd have a lot of negativity, a lot of, you know, basically just evil spirits, especially like in a hospital, because most of these things is going to be dwelling in sadness, lost loved one. You're going to have something like that. You're just they're looking around trying to pass on, and you're not going to have this. This actually, I mean, the psychiatric hospital side, you know, that hospital side, you're going to have probably a lot more of a, in a completely different experience between oh, that absolutely. hospital environment than yeah absolutely no that was no other than that just and you had a couple i apologize i don't my notes i forgot to write it down you have a couple of tv like tv shows too right that you have been involved in yeah just four or five of them um i i do haunted hospitals haunted case files paranormal 911 paranormal night shift um, and later this year, Destination Fear for uh, for an episode or two. But um, as much as I enjoy TV work, books are where it's at for me. That's uh, I have a great face for the keyboard, as my wife will tell you. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. She's yeah, that that's the old joke. You know, it's like a, a face for radio and a voice for print. You know, is what we have. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, yeah. This and so just kind of show everybody. It's like he's talking about. It. It's like you you've been busy. I mean, you really have, you know, and this is Richard, um, Richard Estep.net for anybody. You just go there, click shows, um, click right on the books, brings you right here, shows blog, gives you um, about information, contact. It's, you know, the story. I mean, I definitely, there's a few of them. I'm really interested in getting in some of the, I said the horrors of Fox hollow farm. That one, that one looks really intriguing. I, I said, I'm probably gonna pick that one up and get, get to reading on that one. That uh, that definitely is um, that's the Venn diagram where true crime, serial killers, and the paranormal meet um, because it was that kind of case, and that was really that book is what started me down the road to writing this book about serial killers. It was my first real um, interaction with a case which involved a serial murderer, and you know it's one thing to to read police records; it's another to swim in the pool where the the serial killer murdered his victims. <laughs> 
uh, and to sit at his desk and to re- go through his books and see his handwriting on the shelf. And it was it was definitely a very um, eye opening experience. Yeah, and while kind of while you're on that type thing, do you find that that has almost? Do you feel like it has a negative effect for you? Where like it really takes you a little bit to get past? Like if you're crime scene photos everywhere, you're going through all the stuff. Do you feel like something of that kind of lingers with you, and it takes a little while for you to get that out out of your system? Kind of well, being, I've seen a lot of death because of my profession, and continue to. And you know, you you don't just see death, but you smell it. You're you're around it quite often. Um, and violence and things of that nature. I don't care who you are. Nobody ever depersonalizes. Nobody healthy anyway uh, is ever able to depersonalize it. If you're able to reach that point in your life where this stuff doesn't bother you, uh, then you should either seek help or go do something else. You know, so it, yeah. it can be difficult. I mean, as fascinating as serial killers are, um, after spending over a year researching and writing that book. I wanted to go do something different and I felt like I needed to give my brain a bath, you know, uh, to shower mm-hmm. some of the egg off. And I'm grateful to the people that helped me with that book. I mean, my wife, Laura proofed it and um, she said, this is a great book and it's awful. Um, you know, um, my friend India, who also gave me extensive notes and, and helps me with the research. Uh, my friend Linda that, that also read it. These are serial killer aficionados. Um, and they're familiar with this kind of stuff too. But, um, I think everybody has to step away from this once in a while and just appreciate that we are, we are dealing with, with real human beings here whose lives ended in the worst possible ways. And we should take a moment at least to appreciate them uh, and empathize with them and remember them. Yeah, exactly. Cause I just, cause stuff like I can only imagine like what you go through, like looking at Ed Gain, mm-hmm. like his, his stuff, like, you know, when you see these type of things, like how, how somebody can just decompartmentalize and just set that aside, you know, without it affecting you. Just know, because for me, that's always been when I, when I see somebody, it's kind of weird. I look at them. I don't really picture like, Oh, it's just another person. I just, as we're driving down the road, I, I'll think about the car next to me. This is another person that's doing the same thing. They're driving to some destination. They got the family, they got their problems. You've got, you've got all these things and you could spend a while just thinking about, this whole other world that just drove past you. Sure. And and it's interesting, depending on what your vocation is, you look at people in a different way. I mean, you know, probably do. I'm, I'm not going to fill you with joy when I tell you, Craig, but I look at you right now and my, prof- you know, you'd seem like a nice guy. My professional brain is saying, if I have to breathe for this guy and put a bag valve mask over his face, that beard's going to cause me a real problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I also, this is, this is kind of a horrible thing, but, I also meet new people and without trying, without meaning to, I'm scoping out their veins. Like if you, if I ever meet you and you think I'm checking you out like that, I'm not, I'm actually looking at your um, AC veins and your hands. And I'm thinking if I had to get an IV, that's probably where I would go. It's a professional thing. When I was a firefighter, I used to walk into um, the, the, the grocery store and you would think if I'm stretching a line in here, if I'm pulling a, you know, a hose line in here, I think in multiples of 50 feet, how much hose do I need to drag to fight a fire at the back of the store? And I think, right here. Yeah, absolutely. The AC. Yeah, you you get right, you're right there. That's a good one. Yep. You know, I'm sure <laughs> mechanics look at people's cars that way, you know? Um, 
I know that yeah. you know, pe people that went to film school can't look. My wife went to film school. She cannot watch a movie without finding all the continuity problems with it. She will. I'll be engrossed in the movie, and she'll say that glass of water was full, um, and now it's half full, and then it's two thirds full. That you know continuity errors. It bugs her. She reads it like a job. Yep. You kind of change the way you look at people. I think based on what your vocation is in life. It's like the military, like special forces guys that watch the military movies and it just mm -hmm. drives them crazy when you see some guy, you know, like the way that they've got the, they've got everything laid out. They're like, no, we would never go into something, you know, set up like that. Yeah. We'd never, we'd never be that bunched up that we would all be in one camera shop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to piggyback off what you said a little bit for the guests that don't know, the 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 dead body smell is like it, you would think okay it smells like an animal no that eerie smell of dead people is like crazy I used to work for a funeral home so mm -hmm. it's a it's a smell that you can't get out of your head you smell it you're like oh somebody's dead yeah it's it's crazy I don't know it's I don't know if it's your body breaking down chemical enzymes and stuff but it gives your body gives off a odor that you'll never forget absolutely and I remember distinctly the first time. I ran a cardiac arrest, which was years ago now, many years ago, but um, I kept smelling it all day and all night. And I, I, I swear that I was, even after a shower, I would keep smelling like yeah. it was, it was coming out of my pores, you know, which it's not like I bathed in the dead person, but um, it, it's one of those things. Strength is such a strong sense, a strong sensation. Very visceral, yeah. isn't it? Smell can take you right back when an image might not. We, we've all smelled that thing that takes us back instantly to our childhood, and it was it's just like that, which you don't get with necessarily a sight or a sound. Absolutely. Well, hey, it's like I said, just look at the time. We're, we're running out of time here. Um, but, yeah, it's everybody need to go to richardestep.net and check these books. Um, each one of these, like I said, it's – you can you can go right to it. Um, I think you, most of these are, all, all, if not all of them, are easily available. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can pick those up. Um, there's even if you look on a site here, I'll bring it back up for everybody. Uh, when you click, when you click on a book, it'll take you right here to the link, and just all you have to do is just go here, and you can click right here, Amazon.com. Boom. There's also a link for Amazon.com UK. It takes you right there. You can buy that book. If they make want sure. To you also follow him. Follow like this. Say so click. That's all you got to do. If they want a signed copy, are you? Do you have plates you send out, or you send that you package and ship some books out yourself? So or? yeah, what I what I do is in the U.S. I do mail order signed copies every usually six weeks to two months, and for overseas readers, I'll, I'll mail out book plates because I'm a big um, book person. Like this is my office. Somebody asked me what's on my walls. Um, my library of books is, is kind of right over there, and I have a basement full of books. I'm a collector of books. I really appreciate um, a book book. Much as I love my Kindle and the idea that I can have a thousand books in my pocket, I love I love a signed book, you know? So yep. I do make book plates available for people that want them. Uh, I just ask that they cover postage is all. And, uh, yeah, for somebody that asked earlier, they're on Audible too for the most part. Yeah, and that's yeah. That's I, what you're saying. There is something about physically holding on to a book. You mm -hmm. know, when you're when you're doing it here, it's like you can you can look flip through your phone. But just for me, it's always there's nothing quite like reading a book and falling asleep and having it smack you in the face. It just you, you don't get that with your phone. 
<laughs> for me, as someone that writes them, there's, there's no feeling on it. I finished a book literally yesterday. No, I lied to you. Um, it was uh, Monday. I lost track of the days. And it was a military history book, which is for Visible Ink Press, the guys that just published Serial Killers. Um, and I thought it was pretty fitting to finish um, an American military history book on Memorial Day, you know. And it's mm -hmm. 102,000 words, which it's just a big computer file. But when you hold it in your hands, when you actually have that book and the weight of it, all of those hours you put into it and all of the editing and re-editing and all of the sweat and the frustration of trying to find the right phrase seems worth it when you hold a physical book. Yep. And that's like I said, and that's the thing. Just like everybody, what's what we've been talking about, serial killers, the minds, methods, and mayhem of history's most notorious murders. And I said it's I keep getting that, asked if that's me on the cover as well. <laughs> oh, that right there? No, that's still the, the front cover. Oh, the one right there. Yeah, this <laughs> Jeffrey yeah, yeah, Jeffrey Jeffrey Dahmer's on the back cover. <laughs> oh my god. No, he's not Dahmer. Yeah, no. <laughs> Definitely not. No, that's as well, Richard. We, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This was, this was fantastic. I just, we'd love to have you down the road some point. You know, yeah. kind of follow up, and especially as you got. Do you have anything to tease? Like, uh, might be upcoming, like the serial killers part two. Right. You know, that would be uh, that would be cool, wouldn't it? So yeah, I just did sign with Visible Inc. to do a sequel to Serial Killers 2. It's going to be a similar format because I've heard that people really enjoy the way this book is laid out, but we are looking at a slightly more specific angle um, okay. Serial Killers, a more specific theme, um, because we think there could probably be a series. Uh, if, if the books continue to do well, I'd like to continue to write them. Um, but what I'd love to do, Craig, is, is thank everybody in the chat because I saw a lot of great interaction in there, a lot of great comments. Uh, and stuff that's been thought-provoking. So thank you for being engaged and, and listening to us and speaking to us tonight, guys. It's It's been a real pleasure to virtually meet you all. Yeah, no, uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a been an absolute pleasure, and we love having you on here. So it's, we'll definitely have to do it again, especially, you know, with, you know, as we go down the road, if we don't get to you before, definitely when part two comes out. Def definitely want to have that. So, tell, hey, tell the family, thank you for you know, and we'll talk. We'll talk Legos and nerd stuff one of these times too, because I have a whole nother. I could turn it around and make everybody dizzy, but I've got a whole wall of Star Wars and Legos and everything on the back. Oh, cool! Wall. Yeah, so it's 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 what I, I can probably. I, it's probably too dark. People can't see it, so I won't do it. I'm yeah. I'm working on that big Star Destroyer right now. It's been it's been on my table for months. Oh yeah, those those ones where it's just you see that it's just it's almost daunting task because you're yeah. pouring out. Ba you just open the box, you're like, it can't be too bad, and it just seems like a never-ending cascade of plastic bags comes flowing out, and you're just it's yeah. you know, although it's exactly like writing a book in that it's you know one brick at a time, one sentence at a time. People ask me, you know, how do you write as many books as you do? And it's well, you know, it sounds flippant, but one sentence at a time, and. How do you build a 5,000 piece Millennium Falcon one brick at a time? Exactly. Yeah, definitely. If you don't mind, send us a picture when it gets done with you. Mm -hmm. I'd love to. We'll post it up on the page and show it like, mm -hmm. off because that, that'd be, that's definitely a labor, a labor intensive set to put together. Oh, that it is. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. We'll take care. Have a great night and we'll, we'll be in touch. Appreciate you all. All right. Good night. Everybody, that was, was a Richard E. Step. You know, appreciate appreciate him him coming in this show is brought to you by nanny cakes that go to
And let's see, we're gonna we're gonna try this out here. Hey, there we go. Nanny Cakes 407-923-2898 is the phone number or Nanny Cakes 407 on Facebook. And check her out. Um, mention us three beers. You're gonna save 15% off on your cake order here in the central Florida area. Um, check us out on social media, threebeardspodcast.com. Maybe um kick some stuff over there for for Chris, who's vaping, apparently, making making some noise there, sir. <laughs> Help him out with this. Give him some money, you know, get him the new vape flavor there. <laughs> yes, he's choking to death. All right, everybody, we're rebroadcast on Xena Radio app, the Patriot Radio. We broadcast every Thursday night at 10 p.m. Go ch- check them out, courtesy of JJ Beard Co. Go thank them for doing that. We appreciate them rebroadcasting us there. Everybody, uh, if we could do just a favor, go to YouTube, like, follow, and subscribe, please. We that's kind of like the push here. We, we're really trying to get the subscribers up. It that seems silly, seems small, but that does us a huge favor. Go to Three Beers Podcast on YouTube and just subscribe for us. We would really appreciate and follow the show. Everybody, thank you for watching. We had a great time. Go to richardestep.net. Support him by, for sure, the Serial Killers book and also the one that we talked about, um, haunt, I think it was Haunted um, Hospital, I think it was, I apologize here. Um, check that one out so that way support him, especially with that amazing story. Haunted Healthcare is one, Haunted Healthcare. Support him for that one. And everybody, thank you for watching. Appreciate it. Good night.